Well, alrighty, here we are today, uh, once again, continuing our journey through the book of Revelation. Now, if you were with us for our last two sessions, when we picked up the book again, we looked at chapter 17, all the way through chapter 19, verse 10. And what I sought to do in those messages was make the case that what was being portrayed for us in that passage, by both figurative and literal pictures, was basically the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70. There, in especially chapter 17, Jerusalem is portrayed as a great prostitute that has been alluring the nations into her various idolatrous ways. But if you remember, she wasn't the only villain in the story. In fact, throughout the entire book of Revelation, there's a few villains that come up again and again. There's, of course, the false prophet, perhaps represented, representing Titus, the general of the Roman army who was known for blaspheming God and wanting to completely take out both Jews and Christians in that early time. It could be that it was representing Titus, or it could be just in general that the false prophet was representing the Roman emperor cult uh, in, in general. Uh, it could also be when it comes to this, there was the, the beast. There was also the beast. If you remember, we've heard that name a lot. Well, the beast, most interpreters believe that it's representing at the very least the Roman Empire. It could even be as specific as representing Vespasian, the uh, Roman ruler that uh, that inflicted and enforced the Roman Empire's reign, but at least at the very minimum, it sort of pictures the the empire that the world was facing then. And then, of course, there is this other villain, the dragon, who we know to be the devil. And we're going to meet all of those villains today, and we're going to hear about the beginning of their judgment. We're going to hear, in other words, we're in a transition time now. We're going from seeing the destruction of Jerusalem to now seeing God destroy empires that have raised up against him so that his reign might be true and lasting forever. So that's where we're at today. We're going to be looking specifically at the reign of Christ. We'll pick up the story at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, White and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We enter into chapter 20 now. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. End of reading. Father, I ask that you would clarify and teach us what this word means and why uh, it can be applicable to our lives right now. I pray that you speak clearly through my very imperfect and feeble lips to the people that you've gathered around to hear this. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I read through the text today, you may have noticed by the end that there was a word that was used a few times, and that word was reign. R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. And of course, the reign that is being described is the reign of God, the reign of Christ over his enemies. And so without any further introduction, what I want to look at today is I want to look at four aspects of this reign of Christ from this text. Number one, I want to look at the, the weapon of Christ's reign. Number two, I want to look at the enemies of Christ's reign. Number three, the time of Christ's reign. And finally, the hope of Christ's reign. So first of all, let's look at the weapon of Christ's reign. Just in case it wasn't clear to you, it's very clear from the text that this is all about the reign of Jesus Christ. Now, why do we say that? Because the rider on the white horse coming is referred to by all sorts of titles that are ascribed to Jesus. He is called faithful and true. He is called uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And of course, maybe most importantly for what we're gonna talk about now, he is called, entitled, the Word of God, just as John does in his gospel in his first chapter. So that's abundantly clear that this is about Jesus's reign over his enemies. But that's not what I really wanna focus your attention on because I think that's fairly obvious. 
What I want to focus your attention on is the weapon Christ uses to reign over the world. We're told in the passage in verse 15 that from his mouth comes a, quote, sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. Now that's interesting imagery, a sword that comes from the mouth. I mean, I guess I, I kind of think of like, you know, magicians that can put some sort of sword in their mouth and then pull it out again. But, but something tells me that's not what John saw in his vision here. I don't think this was some sort of, uh, you know, ancient magic trick. No, no, it, it, this goes deeper than that. The sword in connection with the mouth suggests something that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, specifically in passages like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, you can look it up later if you want, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where we're told that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. That makes plenty of sense when, again, you consider the sword is coming from the mouth where the Word is proclaimed. So, my contention right up front here is that the weapon of Christ's reign is indeed God's word. The way that Jesus Christ will take down the nations is by the proclamation, the preaching of his word. And that's very important because that is going to frame the rest of what I just read for us today. If we see the word as being the weapon by which his reign is enforced, well, then that gives us a real clear sense of what we're going to read going forward. We're told that with the sword, Jesus will strike down the nations that are in rebellion against God. Indeed, that is what we see play out historically in the early church and continuing on today. Jesus' reign on earth through his church over the nation does not come with literal swords, though that's what the Pharisees wanted from a Messiah. That's what the disciples wanted from a Messiah. They were all too eager to pick up literal swords. What does Jesus have to say again and again and again? That's not the way my kingdom works. How does his kingdom work? By the power of his word. And what does the preaching of his word do to its hearers? Well, just what it says it will here. It kills and makes alive. The word is able to strike down the proud and raise up the humble. The word has both a negative and a positive function. On the negative side, it does indeed kill the sinner. As the law of God is proclaimed to people, as the law is shouted and proclaimed from the rooftops that though God is glorious, you have fallen short of his glory, and that the wages of falling short of his glory is death. The sinner recognizes that they are worthy of condemnation and under the wrath of God, and it kills them. It shows them that they are spiritually in big, big trouble. And yet, what also does the word do? Through the proclamation of the gospel, that though you have fallen short of the glory of God, there is one who has lived in your place that hasn't, Jesus Christ the righteous. Though you are worthy of death, there is one who has died in your place, Jesus Christ, our atonement. And though you are not worthy of life, but worthy of eternal death, Jesus has risen from the dead, defeating the grave, and promises to all who believe 
that they will join with him in that resurrection. The word both kills and makes alive. It is the weapon of the word that the reign of Christ works with. Too often, unfortunately, the church is prone to looking to other weapons to use in its arsenal and to enforce this reign of Christ. To disastrous results all the time. Of course, we know historically that the church at times has picked up the literal sword in order to force people to convert to Christianity. What an absolute disaster. Or we know that at times, and especially still today, the temptation of the church is to do everything they can to get positions of political influence and power so as to shape the country from on high with legislation so as to make sure that the country is forced to behave in a Christian moral way. These weapons are not the weapons of Christ's reign. Sure, politics has a place. Sure, we can acknowledge that. And if you're called to it, great. But the weapon, the weapon of the reign of Christ, the weapon of God's church is ultimately his word. It's his word that transforms the nations. It's his word that spreads further and further and further every day and makes enemies into friends. So let us not shrink back from simply proclaiming the word of God and actually trusting him to work through it. It's the weapon we have. It's the weapon he's given us. Charles Spurgeon once said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose. Amen. Let the lion loose, church, because this is the weapon Christ has given us. So with that being said, the weapon is identified for us. Let us look now at the enemies of Christ's reign. First, we look at the weapon of Christ's reign. Now let's look at the enemies of Christ's reign. In verse 17 and 18, our minds are harkened back to what we read about in chapters 17 and 18 and early part of 19, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. An angel is seen calling out to birds of the air to come and feast on the flesh of unburied bodies everywhere. Well, we know from historical records and for that matter, uh, from the rest of Revelation, that that indeed is what Jerusalem looked like. It was filled to the brim with unburied dead bodies after it had been conquered. And because they had no place to put these dead bodies, well, we know that there was tons and tons of birds feasting on the flesh in the city. I know it's a gruesome image, but it's a gruesome image uh, to remind us of what God uh, what God allowed to happen in judgment after Israel refused to repent. Now, uh, after that scene, we're taken to what's going to happen to the other villains. So Jerusalem has been dealt with, and he's like, this is the end of, Jeru of Jerusalem there. You know, this is the destruction of the temple. Now I'm going to take you to the other villains, to the false prophet, the beast, and the dragon. Now again, by way of reminder, the false prophet most likely represents at the very least in general the Roman emperor cult. The beast most likely represents the Roman empire in general. And then of course you have the dragon, which very clearly represents the devil. 
We're told in the passage that the first two enemies, the false prophet and the beast, are to be thrown in the lake of fire, while the dragon is eventually to be bound in a bottomless pit. More on all that with the dragon in a bit. But the big idea here is that through, again, the power of Christ's sword, the word of God, that it will take down empires, that it will take down even something as powerful and seemingly indestructible as Rome, that it will get rid of Rome's idolatry and evil ways, and it will do so by proclamation of the word. Did that happen? You bet it happened. The church ends up taking over the empire, not with a physical sword, but by sending out nobodies, people of not much reputation, with a word. A word that declares the forgiveness of sins and empires fall. Idolatry is exposed. That's how the enemies of God ultimately are defeated. And yet when I say enemies here, I, I do want to point out that really, really when it comes down to it, it's ultimately one enemy, right? So yeah, the false prophet and the beast, you know, they, they might be sort of physical manifestations of that, the, the great empire of the world and the evil idolatry of the emperor cult. Yeah, it's a, it's a manifestation of that, but who's really working behind the scenes? What do the scriptures tell us? Well, they tell us really the main villain is the dragon. Now, the only reason I bring this up is because in our quest to be faithful to Christ, sometimes we are prone to looking at other people as though they're the boogeymen, as though they're the real bad guys, as though they're the real evil ones. And we forget to our peril that ultimately working behind the scenes is something much bigger, that it's spiritual in nature. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20 tell us all about that. Tell us about the principalities and the powers of this dark world being influenced and inspired by the dragon's covert activity. Christ's true enemy of his reign is the dragon, is the devil. And the devil, even still today, is at work seeking as best he can to undermine this reign of Christ. And yet, very importantly, as we're going to go on to see, as much as the dragon may rage and fight and breathe fire or whatever else he can do, he is limited in what he can do even now. That brings us to the next point, the time of Christ's reign. Listen to chapter 20, verses 1 through 3 again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed, over him, sealed it over him so that he might not de deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Well, what is going on here? First of all, we're told in the passage that Christ 
by his weapon of the word, will bind Satan for a thousand years. What's the purpose of this binding? Well, we are told that very clearly. That the devil might not deceive the nations any longer, the world any longer. Now, many scholars hear that description and say to themselves, understandably, well, it's clear that human beings are still being deceived all over the world. And so this must be referring to a future kingdom, a future reign that we have not experienced yet. That's an understandable view. You can be orthodox and hold that view. I have no problem if you choose to do so. But I think there's a view that is more in line with the greater narrative of scripture that we need to look at. And here's, here's what I'm gonna tell you to do. Yes, it is a fact that people are still being deceived. But in contrast to before Christ came and after Christ came, it's not even remotely comparable. Think with me for a little bit. Before Jesus comes, all of the nations of the world, and I mean literally all of them, with the exception of little Israel, who did basically no evangelizing at all that we're much aware of in the Old Testament, with the exception of this little tiny nation in Palestine, the whole world was running after other gods and had no exposure to the true God at all, none. Completely and utterly deceived. The world is a field day for Satan and his deceptive ways. And he seems to have a stranglehold over everybody and has blinded them to seeing the truth. But what happens after Jesus comes? Jesus raises again from the dead, ascends into heaven, sends out a church, a ragtag bunch of people. And what happens the nations, for the first time in history, are exposed to the true God. The blinders are coming off. People that have been deceived for centuries and centuries, thousands of years, are now coming to see the truth. And from all over the world, Revelation points to us, a group of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, worshiping the true God. Now, what am I getting at here? Let me be very blunt with you. I believe because of that fact and among and also because of other factors that we just don't have time to go into specifically today, I believe that when Jesus rose again from the dead, that the millennial reign that's being described about described right here began right then. That yes, the devil is still alive as the text shows us, but he's bound. And for what reason? There's a very specific reason that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Yes, at the end, he will have a chance to do that again, but now he's bound. He can only do so much. He tries to do a lot, but he can only do so much. He's like a dog on a chain that can only go so far before being pulled back. If that's the case, then what I'm telling you is that, well, yes, the thousand year reign began 2,000 years ago. Well, now you're saying, uh, 
Okay, so are you saying if it began 2,000 years ago that it ended like in the 10th or 11th century? I mean, what are you saying? No. You say, well, but it's a thousand years. I mean, isn't that, here's what I'm, here's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Naturally, you come to a number like this in most other books and the tendency naturally and rightly is to take it literally. But in Revelation, numbers are used symbolically so, 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 so much throughout all of the book that we have good reason to ask if this should be taken literally or not. On top of that, we can see in passages like Psalm 90, verse 4, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that the period thousand years is used as an imprecise unit of time. It's meant to describe usually just a long period of time to suggest, you know, it's like it's like going somewhere and trying to describe that there's a lot of people there. It's like, oh man, there's like a, there was like thousands of people there. You're not being specific. You didn't count literally every single person there, but the person you're speaking to knows the figure of speech you're using. So too, John uses a figure that was very familiar to the people back then, especially we have some ancient rabbinical writings and writings from around that time that use this figure of a thousand years to describe the vastness of the reign of God. With those factors being the case, what I'm saying to you right now is that right now, the dragon is bound. The devil is bound. Yes, he's still alive and he's still thrashing about and he's still trying to do things, but right now, He's limited in what he can do. And what that means for you right now is that you are still in a period before the very last days in which the devil will have more free reign like he did back in the early days before Christ came. And what that means is that we have tremendous opportunity to share the word, to use the sword of the spirit, to bring down nations and bring them back to life before the great day of the Lord comes. We have opportunity right now because right now, right now, Christ reigns and is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now. We're not waiting for that day to come. We're in that day. And because we're in that day, well, we can find great hope in Christ's reign. That's the final picture that we're given by John in the passage before us. Right after the dragon is bound, what do you see? John sees images of thrones and those who are of the people of God being raised to new life and ruling and reigning alongside of Christ. Now you say, well, man, that's great. That's great that it's going to happen one day. And yes, that's true. It's going to happen one day. But there's the truth also that in some sense, it's already happening for you. And you say, well, how's that? Here's how. What does the Apostle Paul say happened to you in your baptism at Romans chapter 6? In Romans chapter 6, he says, there you were killed and risen with Christ. Ephesians 1 and 2 tell us that you already have been seated with Christ functionally, that you're raised with him already. There's a sense in which you already are reigning alongside of him as a member of his body and of his church. Yes, right now you reign. 
with Christ. Now, uh, it's important to note, again, and be reminded, who is John writing to? John's writing to a bunch of beleaguered Christians that are tempted to flee the faith. They're, they're enduring persecution and struggle in the empire, and everybody from the empire looks like they're going to gobble them up. Looks like they're going to have a field day with them. To the world, the church looks weak and needy and really impotent. And what does John say to them right now? How does he encourage them? No, you reign with Christ now. You are risen with Christ now. Live in the reality of that identity. You are forgiven of your sins now. Listen, the Apostle Paul was not exaggerating or using hyperbolic flourish. When in Romans chapter 8, he declares to that church and by extension to us right now, right now, you are, present tense, more than conquerors through Christ who loves you. Right now, neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. It's true now. Because Christ reigns now with the weapon of his word now and his enemies don't have a chance against him or against you. For that, we respond with praise and thanksgiving. Father, I ask that you would remind us repeatedly of our status. It's too good to be true, it seems, sometimes, because we're all too aware of the ways in which we feel like we're not reigning, in which we feel like we're not who you say we are. And that's why it's so important that just as the word is a weapon for others, it's a weapon for us too, to cut down false ideas and to instead replace those false ideas with the truth of what your word declares us to be, righteous and forgiven and holy in your sight. To that end, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever.